Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. During the pandemic and the lockdown, we've been doing our best to keep a sense of balance while keeping a focus on the plight of the planet. We aim to inform and entertain our listeners with a balance of subject matter and discussions on everything from bird life from your balcony to the green economy. I'm delighted today to be joined by two leading academics from the fields of energy and climate change, whose interdisciplinary work and expertise will be vital as we start to explore a way out of the current economic shutdown through a green recovery. Both my guests work closely with the International Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, and have a global as well as a local perspective to bring to our discussion. Michael Grubb is a Professor of Energy and Climate Change at University College London, who throughout his long and distinguished career has combined both his research and his applied roles to bring research insights into policymaking and practical experience to bear on academic studies. Author of eight books, his work Planetary Economics, Energy, Climate Change and the Three Domains of Sustainable Development, brought together insights from 25 years of research and implementation of energy and climate policies. I would say we need him now more than ever. Welcome, Michael, and thank you for joining us on Planet Pod. Thank you for the invitation to uh, participate. My second guest, Dr. Alex Kobley, is a research fellow at the Grantham Institute at Imperial College and Centre for Climate Finance and Investment, where he leads research on development of climate financial scenarios to inform the financial sectors on climate-related risk and opportunities. His research has been used to support climate policy implementation in Brazil, the design of scenarios for the Bank of England, and the network for greening the financial system. He is also a co-investigator in Paris Reinforce, a Horizon 2020 project involving a consortium of European and international institutions looking at low carbon pathways to meet Paris Agreement goals through the use of models and stakeholder engagement. Alex, welcome to Planet Pod and thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Since the beginning of the pandemic, the focus has been naturally on controlling the spread of the disease, keeping people safe and saving lives, but at an enormous cost, total shutdown of economies, of businesses and of travel. With a resulting upending of the economy and trillions of pounds, dollars and euros of support packages being rolled out, this is of course unsustainable in anything but the short term and possibly not even then. So I wondered if we could kick off our conversation by asking you both for some observations on where you think we are now, both in terms of the economy and the current state of climate change commitments, but in the general sense of where we are within the kind of strange and extraordinary experiences that COVID-19 has, has wrought. Michael, could I start with you perhaps? Um, yes, many thanks, Amanda. I mean, uh, we certainly do live in interesting times, uh, obviously. Um, I mean, I think it would be uh, wrong not to start with acknowledgement there's been devastating loss, not just of lives, but of economic activity and welfare, uh, to which many, many people are suffering. Um, There's always been uh, an energy economy link with the decline in economic activity. Um, We've seen a decline in energy demand, and along with that, obviously, a decline in uh, emissions of of various sorts, local air pollution as well as global CO2. Uh, The estimates are that global CO2 has gone down at least 5%. Uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it turns out to be uh, significantly more than that uh, over the course of this year. that is really not the way that one would want to go about reducing emissions. Uh, the much uh, preferred way is uh, to effectively 
uh, economic growth from, from emissions, uh, in which we've made some progress. Uh, and over the last few years, this crisis has hit against an interesting background where uh, emissions seem to be going up pretty inexorably uh, up until about 2015 at the global level. Um, they've then been bumping around a bit, stabilised for a few years, up again the last couple, mutterings about 2019 probably not increased, but a real debate about, you know, are we achieving decoupling uh, at the global level? We certainly are at some country levels. The UK is, is a, a good example where we've had uh, major emission reductions, uh, but mainly from power generation, um, and uh, well, alongside economic growth. So, you know, the context of this crisis is interesting. Um, to me, the big issues are not about the short-term impacts, which, as I say, is not the way that anyone would want to achieve emission reductions. But it's both about what might be some of the underlying lessons uh, and what might be the choices and, and, in some cases, opportunities that we have as we start to recover uh, out, of, out of this crisis. Um, one other final remark just about the, the general impact of the crisis, uh, which is on the global energy markets. Um, and I'd be interested to hand over, to, obviously, to Alex on these and other, other points. Um, but it, it's particularly targeted oil consumption because it's targeted, above all, travel. Um, and travel is the dominant consumer of oil. Now, there's going to be a fair amount of trying to rewrite history, but oil was anyway getting into a degree of trouble. There started to be a decline of oil prices from January when attempts to strike a deal between OPEC and Russia broke up. Uh, COVID has just hugely amplified what was already a downward trend. Uh, and we, we've effectively seen a complete collapse of the global oil market. Uh, so prices were around 60 and now they're, they're below 20. Uh, that's a huge change with many implications uh, all over the place, which maybe we come back to. And in some cases, I think I heard recently a report that they were actually below zero. So high people being paid to take oil off, off the hands of the oil companies, which seems extraordinary. Um, it's true there's been some negative prices, which is extraordinary uh, and totally unprecedented. But I think whilst it makes great headlines, it, it's not actually that important in itself because it reflected some peculiarities of contracting in the US and storage overflowing where people had contracts to deliver, so they had to pay people to take oil off their hands. The big news really is not what happened around what's called the West Texas Intermediate Oil, but it's the global markets, and they have also nosedived, not negative, but down to, down to a third of what they were. Alex, would you see, I mean, that for many of us, you know, lay people, that would be seen as a, as a good thing that if oil prices decline, but that has a knock-on effect on all other parts of the economy, doesn't it? And on that balance between, you know, energy supply and, and other aspects of economics. So, so, so what's your take on, on where we are, where we are now? Uh, yeah, you're right. It does have knock-on effects and um, it may not be all that good. As Michael said, it is a transitory thing that has to do more with, um, with the peculiarities of the market. Um, but there are a couple of things that are important when you think about oil being so low, is that it is good for countries that import 
oil. So the importers are actually going to have a little bit of a, of a break in terms of their outflow of capital. Um, but the exporters are going to, to hurt. Um, and, and we're already seeing that play out. Another thing that is also an interesting dynamic is that it, it does reduce a little bit the, the cost advantages that uh, renewable um, energy would have against oil uh, because uh, it becomes so cheap. So it could, you could see like a, a rebound effect of the, of, of the, uh, of the demand for, for oil. So, so, but these are very complex dynamics and it doesn't just, it's not just so straightforward because in the end, um, the, the, the additional cost that oil adds to the total cost of driving, for example, is not that significant. So, so it's still, I think that the, the recent cost declines in, in renewable energy are going to continue say uh, gaining market share against oil into the future because we, we expect these cost declines to continue well into the future. Uh, one thing that I think that I would add to what Michael said um, is that the, the impacts that are happening from the economic uh, fallout from, from this COVID crisis um, are distributed very unevenly across the world, um, not just in terms of uh, different social uh, classes, but also across different types of countries. Uh, emerging markets are taking a severe hit. There's been an unprecedented, what's called flow of capital out of uh, emerging markets. That means that money is being taken out. Everybody's investors, by me, everybody, is, are moving to, to, to safe havens. And this usually means treasury bills from the US. So, so the dollar has gone up in value. And, and uh, national currencies in many countries are, are, have, have lost a lot of their value. So a lot of the wealth has been eroded in these countries that still need to make some significant gains to, to, to reach a certain level of income. So, so I think that, that and, and also the other thing is, is that the, the poor uh, in, in, in all countries, and this is across developed and developing uh, world, the poor are going to be hit uh, particularly hard on this and the working classes. So there's also, the, I've, I've followed a couple of interesting threads on, on, in social media um, on how uh, those who can stay at home to work are, are usually the better off than those who have to actually be uh, physically present in order to do their jobs. And, and so therefore they're, they're running a, a much higher risk. Uh, usually these people also live in, in in more polluted areas, uh, and that has impacts on their lung capacity to to react to to uh, to the presence of the virus, to infections. It, it brings in underlying conditions, asthma, for example, and things like that. So I think that there are these distributional aspects of of this that should be really taken on board when we think about how do we recover, how, how, what kinds of investments should a society do in order to uh, not just prop up GDP, which is this aggregate of you know, all economic activity in the world, but more of these underlying metrics of, of distributional issues. So like, if, if you think of, 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 of a move to electric vehicles, it would bring down air pollution in cities, for example, and particularly in very busy streets where a lot of these more vulnerable uh, sectors, sections of the population actually live. So I think that there's these co-benefits of 
a transition to a low carbon economy that I think it, they're hard to monetize, right? So this is the one thing, it's very hard to put down on, 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 a, on, a, on a spreadsheet and say, oh, we're going to save this. But, but there are ways to, to calculate these, uh, what, what these uh, costs actually in, imply uh, for society at large. So, so I think it's important to take these things into consideration when, 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 when the government is making investments with the taxpayers' money, that it needs to look at the social good, not just bail out certain companies because of a narrow uh, framework view that will, will save, you know, a, a few jobs immediately. But in the long term, there, there will be other types of uh, metrics and criteria that we should take on board. And also, you could create new jobs by shifting to new industries. So I think that that, that, that sort of a balance needs to be carefully taken into account when, when we start thinking about how to transition out of this situation that we're in, which is, like Michael said, extremely unfortunate. This is not the way that we want to reduce emissions at all. Nobody is happy with the way that, uh, that, that this has been uh, playing out. So uh, I think that the thing now is to say, okay, well, we can't do anything. We're, this is where we have to start from. So let's make the best of this and try to look forward into uh, more positive directions on how to, to spend these uh, economic stimulus money, uh, funds that are, that are going to be uh, necessary. You know, governments are gonna have to step in and, and, and do this. So I think it would be good to, to think of some, some good co-benefits of this investment, not just uh, bailing out um, the economy at this point. Michael, you made that point that, that, you know, that we didn't want to be here. This is a dramatic um, halt to emissions. And, and perhaps it, we can see that evidence that you were just talking about, Alex, and saying that actually we have noticed cleaner air. We've noticed a drop in pollution. And maybe that's the evidence base we need to reinforce some of those arguments that have been so difficult for some people to get their heads around that actually a reduction in air pollution, a reduction in pollution generally is better for the not just for for the planet but also for the people on the planet for particularly for for people in in vulnerable positions or marginalized economies or marginalized societies so that sense that we have now actually have a piece of concrete evidence that demonstrates if you take the pollution out of the atmosphere it's better for people's health and maybe that's something that helped contrive that just transition it, and it is all about the just transition isn't it and we've been talking about this for years but we haven't been able to really kind of I don't know, energize our politicians and our policymakers to get behind that, apart from in some exceptional circumstances where countries have taken it on board. I mean, Michael, are you fearful for the future of the, the Paris Agreement and some of the climate commitments because of the inevitable push from governments to bounce back, you know, stronger and re-emit and, you know, as we did after 2008, go back to polluting technologies and polluting industries very quickly? I think... Um I mean, there is, there is, of course, an old phrase. It, it sounds at this moment a little bit brutal, but, but it remains true, never waste a crisis. A crisis is thrust upon us, um, which none of us would have wanted. Um, where are there any positive uh, signs or, or you might say wider lessons to be drawn, particularly in relation to the environment? And I think there's, there's at least two very clear ones. Um, one is actually we have seen the impact of reduced local air pollution uh, pretty much directly associated with, with fossil fuel use. Uh, and in fact, there's, there's credible data around uh, to suggest that more lives in China have been saved by reduced air pollution than have been lost to COVID. Um, and uh, so I think it will 
underline that that linkage and and perhaps more generally socially um, you know to some extent populations in in some perhaps particularly uh, emerging economies have have sort of got a bit used to uh, horrible levels of air pollution which have inflicted huge health damage and they're they're discovering what it's like to have a clean city and clear skies and more breathable air and and that that I think will be uh, noticed. The other environmental lesson I think to draw and you know one one could argue but it does seem that the countries say this tentatively but the countries that seem to have handled this best South Korea's a, a, a notable example uh, have been ones that were prepared that acted very quickly on the basis of scientific advice uh, to some extent because they they'd had to deal with SARS before um, you know over a decade ago um, but I, I think more generally they they rapidly said what's the science get the data understand what's going on where are the trends where are the risks where are our vulnerabilities and a very proactive forward-looking approach to handling the crisis uh, and of course that, that's exactly what the scientific community has been saying for, for years, if not decades, about climate change. It's like we try to track the evidence every year, every year the, the, the data reinforces the underlying trend that we feared and which is kind of difficult to escape. Put 40 billion tonnes of heat trapping gases into the atmosphere, what do you think is going to happen? And it's <laughs> um, so I think there is really a lesson here about the centrality of science and, and forward-looking and heeding advice and acting it um, for good policy making. And I think that does have a very natural spillover from uh, COVID uh, and comparisons of how different countries have fared better or worse, um, uh, reading over into climate. Um, so I think contextually, those are important lessons. Uh, I think your your other question is, am I optimistic? Will this kibosh the Paris Agreement, etc.? I think everything is up for grabs. Um, clearly, all governments have more immediately urgent things on their plate. Um, and that is entirely understandable. And it's also understandable that there have been major uh, economic rescue packages. But I think it's important to draw a very big distinction between the short-term rescue, basically injecting money, stopping people being, you know, thrown out of job with no money, uh, that, what an economist would call broadly liquidity to keep the economy alive, is very different from the debates that we're now just starting to get into about what is the recovery strategy from here. Um, we could perhaps come back to that, but I, I think everything is up for grabs in terms of the structure and direction of, of economic recovery, and that's the really important debate. Alex, do you have thoughts? Yeah, I would concur with, with Michael on this. Um, it's, there are some good things and some bad things that will probably come out of this in terms of climate ambition. Um, it remains to be seen, uh, but there are some very positive uh, moves out there that I'm starting to notice. Um, one thing, for example, that um, I, I was, um, uh, I noticed that uh, the head of the IEA, Dr. Fatih Birol, has come out very strongly in support of, uh, of a climate-friendly stimulus um, package and has published several blogs and has given interviews. He's, I saw him on, on major international 
outlet saying this, that it is important that the that climate change be front and center in this strategy to towards recovery. How do we come out of this? So, and that is very significant. Um, I think that he's 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 taking this on board. Um, so, uh, I think that we'll we'll have to to see where it goes. This COP that is happening at the end of this this year, this uh, um, uh, UNFCCC, so the Paris Agreement, the, the the Climate Convention, meets every year. So it's called a COP meeting, and this one is supposed to is going to happen in the UK. It's, it's scheduled to happen in Glasgow. It was scheduled for November, December. Now it's moved to January. But is, that a, is that official, Alex? Is it definitely going to happen in I January? think so. I think, I think, it's, I think, I think so. Um, I, last I checked, that's what it was on, on the calendar, but I think it's something that's worth, uh, worth uh, double-checking. But that was supposed to be a very – it's 2020. 2020 has been this landmark milestone year in many forward-looking analysis of climate policy, climate change, going back – many years, you know, 2020 has always been that year in the models that, you know, it's a nice round number, 2020, many uh, national policies, EU policies were set for 2020. So the, the energy efficiency uh, renewable share 2020 into, so 20% renewable, 20% efficiency by 2020. So, so it's, it's this really important year, but now it's going to be a point out of the curve in terms of emissions, because there's this big dip in economic activity, in, 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 in emissions. So where do we go from here? There, there are, there's conversation that this could be a peak of emissions, that, that we, 2019 may have been now the, the highest uh, emission that we get to if a transition unfolds from here, which would be very interesting coincidence, actually, that this actually happened in 2020, if that turns out to be the case. But... Um, but I think in terms of the strategy going forward, there are some indications, um, if we go a little bit beyond national governments, central governments, if we go to non-state actors, as they are called, um, cities, businesses, or, or states and counties, for example, also, um, they have a much more direct link to the benefits of a decarbonized society. For example, a city government usually has to, to, to manage roads and public transport and deals with health issues and safety. They're much more directly in contact with the, the, the say, the, the bad consequences, the, the, the negative effects of excessive fossil fuel use in terms of pollution and health. So they have, and they also have to deal with, for example, sea level rise if it's a coastal city. Like New York has been a leader particularly while Michael Bloomberg was there. But I think it, it, this, is, this hasn't stopped just because the, there, was, there was a change in government. He, he may have started it, but this has become part of the political DNA of these places that they see the importance. I think Hurricane Sandy really brought that on to New York's uh, agenda, uh, that the awareness of the people that, wow, this, this, this could be really bad if it gets worse than this. Um, mm -hmm. New York was paralyzed for a week or so, you know, and so, so these things, the situation that we're living in now has happened a little bit in certain localities that have been exposed to extreme events. 
We've seen um, a rise in, 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 in many uh, indicators uh, of extreme events coming, becoming more common, becoming more, um, more powerful. So the fire, and, and so I'm, I want to lead this into, the, there's the local governments, but then there's the, 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 the firms, the private businesses. And, and I think in terms of finance of, of, of a transition, there has been also a change in how the, the returns are, are of, of, of investments are starting to relate to one another. So we, there was some, uh, some, some research that we did at Imperial Business School, the Center for Climate Finance and Investment. Um, in March, uh, renewable energy returns have outperformed fossil fuels, except for natural gas. Natural gas still outperforms renewables, but renewables have outperformed oil, coal, and, and, and heavy um, carbon intensive uh, assets. Um, so the volatility of fossil fuel uh, commodity prices is expected to, to increase going forward, particularly with oil, what Michael was saying with OPEC, US, Russia, with this market share, fight for market share. There's probably going to be a lot of volatility, which is difficult uh, to, to maintain sound investment returns um, that, that, that compared to something that has a more even uh, return, more predictable return, like, financial, like a renewable energy. So I think as costs continue to decline, the financial decision, the investment decision is going to be changed from the old uh, logic that you know, fossil fuels were the cheapest option to something a lot more nuanced and probably in, in a few more years, the clear winner is going to be renewable solar wind. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be the, the, the cheapest option out there. And I think Michael can talk to this uh, a lot. This has been something that he has written about quite a bit. Um, and, and this can be a major disruptor in, in how the, invest, the financial sector um, approaches their strategic decisions of investments. So I think that this is something that we also need to take, uh, to take on board. So these non-state actors, if you just focus on the national capitals like Washington, DC, then, then you, you tend to, to get a, a very um, pessimistic view of climate action as a whole. Um, but if you look below that, uh, there's a lot going on. The, the United States, for example, which is usually, you know, Washington is the pariah of climate ambition. But if you look at what the states are doing, what the cities are doing, and even what private businesses are doing, it's a completely different picture. California yeah. is a leader in, yeah, in, it's very in, different. in climate ambition. But, but the problem is that the way that the, that the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which, from which the Paris Agreement came out, the way that it is built, it is built around national governments. So the focus of, 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 of the media coverage is always on that. And so it's very easy to become despondent because you're receiving these, okay, Trump is uh, pulling out of the Paris Agreement. Yeah, but th the amount of pushback that he received from, from, from non-state actors in the US was such that, that who knows what's going to happen. He hasn't officially, uh, that hasn't officially happened yet. You know, you yeah. have to wait four years. So that's going, if he wins, then... And who knows what happens in the next election? You know, fingers exactly. crossed. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I that's think a it's different story. really interesting that you make that point because, I mean, I think it's, 
that highlights for me a couple of things. One is that this stuff is completely interconnected, as we always knew, and you can't have one one actor or, or one entity driving the solution. So it can't just be government, it can't just be business, it can't just be be you know us as general consumers. So we have to have all of us working together. And the other is that that, that you know there are huge opportunities around the kind of green recovery and the green economy and low carbon infrastructure and renewable energy to actually make this a you know, a positive way forward for investment. And of course, you know, as Michael said, we have to have short-term, you know, economic stimulus. But long-term, we have to have a plan that actually shifts our economy into more of that renewables, more of that green tech, more of that, you know, uh, climate protecting rather than climate damaging um, economic activity. But the other thing I think is that this, it's the interconnectivity of all of these aspects, isn't it, Michael? And you've done a lot of work around this about, you know, policy and economics and wider politics and business actors you can't take one one leg of the stool and have only that leg you have to have all the legs of the stool to make this work effectively don't you yes i think um definitely one of the big lessons uh in the last 20 years i guess uh has been that yes government action is important but many other parts of society need to be involved uh, at many levels and um, I just thought it'd be maybe interesting to, to pick up a, a couple of points about aspects of how that works or might work in, in, in post-COVID context. Um, but first, again, it's, it's important to, to, to think the context into which this crisis has landed, because we've had, and, and climate change, we've had the Paris Agreement, and as Alex said, Paris Agreement is based around nation states. They are political and and legal entities at the table. And they are kind of the ones that have to be and are sort of the legitimate governments that set uh, ultimately the objectives. And the Paris Agreement, which is still basically has every country except the US, um, one of the fundamental things is it set the objective um, which you know was was the range 1.5 to 2 degrees uh, maximum warming, uh, and the recognition that ultimately means getting to net zero, and it set up a process for governments to come to the table and offer what they would be doing as their next step, um, known as the nationally determined contributions. But there's actually a very big difference between uh, just saying what your objectives are in the long term and roughly where your initial ambition might lie from actually delivering it. And uh, I mean, a lot of people were saying they wanted the UK COP to be about greater ambition. And I must admit, personally, I just kind of groaned. <laughs> we, we've had 20 years of greater ambition. The problem has yeah. been increasing. Yeah. Absolutely. And the delivery has been much more specific. It's been about engaging other actors. It's been about designing the incentives right. Um, It's often uh, actually the levers are in the hands of of individual states or cities, uh, plus the various businesses, finances and social groups that they may work with. So delivery always was something that occurred more broadly in society. And is, is frankly also not something that nation states on their own can uh, either entirely drive or entirely stop, as, as we see in, in the United States. So if we then come against that background, um, but, but I, mean, I should say the, the role of government remains important, 
but to some reflects the society and the demand society is, is placing on it. So it then becomes a question in the recovery period, which voices do the government listen to most? What opportunities does it see? Now, um, maybe, maybe on the opportunity side first. Um, I can be a bit geeky for a moment. Economists talk about multiplier effects, which is when you're in a recession, try and make investments which will leverage the unemployed resources, bring more people to the table, create new and innovative businesses that can grow and expand and add economic value in the future. And basically it's common in coming out of recession and well-designed policies will have a multiplier two or three, or you know, every, every pound the government puts in can, can, can bring multiple uh, wider benefits, providing it goes towards new and growth industries. Um, some obvious opportunities in the UK context. I mean, there's actually lots, but I think three I, I would flag. Uh, definitely, you know, home insulation, uh, which is quite a major employer where we have a problem with the lack of skills base. So a major training program around, to be blunt, getting British buildings up to the standard of Scandinavia, uh, you know, which should have been done long ago. And we've had bits and pieces, but never in a very systematic way. And also perhaps re retrofitting some of the buildings we've already got as well as oh, the totally. new builds. Yeah, yeah. No, that's the bigger challenge. No, we, yeah. we have moderately strong standards on new building now. Mm. Um, but retrofitting is, is a much bigger logistical challenge and yeah. it's labour intensive and so forth. Um, then I think the electrification of the, the uh, transport sector is mm -hmm. another one. And that is obviously important in terms of both installation of charging capacity, uh, how that can work in different regions. Um, to the manufacturing side and the technology side. Um, and then uh, also the government um, committed in its manifesto to 40, 40 gigawatts, 40,000 megawatts of offshore wind energy uh, over the next decade. Uh, and that's, again, a huge industry. Uh, the UK is in a strong position globally, unlike several other areas where it's been slightly playing catch-up. It's now in a very good position on that, and it's a massive global resource, and it is a sort of natural progression from the offshore oil and gas industries towards the offshore uh, wind uh, and marine industries. So, you know, those are just three areas of obvious growth opportunities, all of which I think would have quite a high leverage value. If I can maybe just add to that the flip side, um, which is there are a lot of voices obviously will be calling for rescuing the airline industry, the car industry, the, the, some of the established building companies that maybe have actually been amongst the most aggressive and resistant. Um, and I am tempted to, to, to say it, it is partly therefore a battle over which voices and pressures win. But it's also worth remembering uh, an economist, e economics has an old phrase, sometimes forgotten, uh, from a very famous economist who talked about the, the processes of innovation. And he said, you look back at the big waves of innovation and growth in history, and they all nearly always accompanied what's now known as Schumpeterian creative destruction. You had to destroy some of the old stuff first. Mm. And uh, that was always one of the biggest challenges to climate policy is there's a lot of money, jobs, investment vested in fossil fuels. And, and it was going to be understandably difficult for political systems uh, to deal with that. 
inevitably a decline in the value of those industries associated with moving to a low carbon economy. Well, you know, in a pretty brutal way, COVID has done a lot of creative destruction. Yeah. Absolutely. It's the kickstart that possibly we needed. Sadly, we're running a bit short of time, but I mean, I just wanted to, to, to pick up on, I mean, you, you just said, Michael, this is, you know, a great, you know, it was a beginning of a great year or the 2020 decade. I mean, this was meant to be the decade of action, but, but, but I know Alex, some of your work is in those developing economies and emerging economies. And, and obviously, you know, they will be, as you said, hugely at risk. Um, and part of the kind of commitments around the sustainable development goals was that we ensured sort of equality across the globe. And we had a, you know, a, a plan for the planet as it were for the world. Do you, do you fear for some of those, those investments or is it, is it, as Michael said, this is an opportunity to really kickstart investment in some of those more sustainable technologies and areas in, in parts of the world that have, you know, that have less developed economies? I think it's a great opportunity to do that. Um, there's a lot of, there's, there's something called leapfrogging, right? So as, as, as less developed economies move towards a path of, of development in the molds of currently developed countries, they could follow the same path of could skip fossil fuel, stages. but they could leapfrog over that and go straight to a 21st century type of mm. energy system, for example. Mm. And I think that there, there's, a, there, there's a huge opportunity in that because the other uh, way, which is what sometimes is, is uh, mentioned as being fair, that, you know, uh, they have the right to develop, so they should, con they should be able to pollute first, and, and the, the developed countries should decarbonize and while these other countries uh, develop with fossil, uh, in a fossil-based manner. The problem is that once we get to 30, 40, 50 years from now, the developed world is going to have this shiny new energy system. Everything's going to be clean and beautiful, and the developed world is going to have to do the catching up all over mm -hmm. again. So I don't think that that is a fair, necessarily a fair way to think. I think that the opportunity should be taken to actually move these forward and even past where the developed world is now into a shiny new, mm. get the, the latest model. Don't sell me the, the used car from 20 years ago. You know, so I, think, so I think that there's something to be said about that. And, and as the cost has come down and, and also, uh, the tropics where a lot of the develop, emerging economies, developing countries are, have huge renewable potential in biomass, wind and solar. So why not use this? Why not deploy this? The challenge there is that there's a lot of um, state-owned assets in fossil industries, state-owned oil companies, state-owned um, coal uh, interests. So, so there's a bit of, of a, of vested interest issues and how how to navigate this political economy uh, quagmire, I think is going to be the big challenge there, but the opportunities are there. And I think that it will be for a much more resilient um, future for these countries in terms of development, sustainable development. And that's one of the great learnings, I think, and lessons from COVID, isn't it? That we, 
many people saw it coming. There were huge predictions that we were due for a pandemic, that there was the, you know, the, the mm-hmm. disease X was out there. So there were all of these indicators and, you know, we didn't build in the resilience and we didn't listen to the, to the science. And I think if, you know, if we've learned anything in the last few weeks is that we need to listen to expertise and to science. It's been absolutely fascinating. We could, I could have this conversation for the whole of the rest of the day. <laughs> um, sadly, I'm not sure our listeners could, could, could stick with us for as long as that, but I would be delighted if we could perhaps have you back in a few weeks time to to, to, to take another temperature test of where we've got to. Michael and Alex, thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your insights and your wisdom with Planet Pod listeners. And um, I hope our listeners have found this as fascinating as I have. Keep listening, everybody. Get in touch via social media at planet underscore pod. Visit our website, theplanetpod.com. We need to hear from you and we need to stay connected to you. So stay safe, stay well, everyone, and keep listening to Planet Pod. And thank you to my guests. Thank you. Thank you very much. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.